Welcome to Ethics in Action, brought to you by the Applied Ethics Center at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. Dive into crucial conversations with academics and policymakers as we explore the crossroads of ethics and public affairs. Good morning. I am with uh, Professor uh, Jim Keenan from uh, Boston uh, College. Uh, Professor Keenan is the Kinesis Professor and the Director of the Jesuit Institute there and the Director of the Gabelli Presidential Scholars Program in the Theology Department. And uh, Jim and I are going to discuss Jim's uh, important, relatively new book uh, on university ethics, a topic on which uh, not much uh, at all has been uh, written, and uh, to which Jim just made uh, a huge uh, contribution. Uh, Jim, thanks so much for making the time. Thank you, Nia. Um, so maybe I can ask you, Jim, um, uh, how do you come to write about something like this? What, what do you see or what do you notice that brings it to your attention? Well, um, actually, I have a particular uh, brief uh, exposure. Um, I, besides being a professor, I'm also a priest, and I am here in the Boston Archdiocese where the sex abuse scandal broke. And, um, and I began to realize that more and more that the, that the church, which teaches ethics, um, did not teach its ministers ethics uh, and uh, right conduct of how they should. Uh, proceed. Uh, in my own um, priestly formation, I had to uh, take courses in in uh, moral theology and sexual ethics and medical ethics and in business ethics and social ethics. And all these were the ethics of other people. We were supposed mm-hmm. to be talking about the ethics of the married people and the ethics of business people and the ethics of physicians and nurses but we never talked about our own personal ethics, what was expected of us as uh, priests or as uh, ministers. And, um, and I began to see that, you know, matters on confidentiality, on all sorts of things, not just sexual misconduct, but uh, real accountability, transparency, uh, some ways of just being responsible agents. None of that was really part of our training. And I re- wrote on that, uh, quite a bit during the mm-hmm. 15 years that the scandal kind of passed through here. And when I finished, I began looking at the university going, well, the other institution that teaches ethics is the university. In fact, much more so than the church. Mm-hmm. Um, it publishes books. It publishes lots of uh, research on ethics. And it teaches legal ethics, it teaches medical, all your medical ethics are for the most part done by professors at university, all your ethics in the law or in journalism, ethics in business, all that is written not by business people, not by um, physicians, not by journalists, it's written basically by faculty members at universities who are scrutinizing uh, the conduct of other industries and other fields. And there was nothing self-reflective. There was nothing of faculty writing about faculty. There was nothing certainly about 
uh, what happens on a campus with regard to race or there were commentaries written by journalists, but there's more about shock value and more about, uh, isn't this appalling, but not putting it in the key of ethics even. Mm-hmm. And it just seemed really a, a time of reckoning for the university to, um, ha- to say to especially faculty and especially those who teach ethics, um, how come you have not done anything on this? So I began doing an investigation. One thing I did find was Stephen Kahn about 30 years ago did some work on faculty ethics. He called it academic ethics. And this was, these were books that were about the conduct of a particular faculty member, always tenure or tenure track. Um, for instance, in his major book, no mention is made of adjunct faculty. And now at our universities, a good 40%, some will say even more than uh, the majority, the majority actually are. Um, adjunct faculty, um, but no mention of sustainability of tuition, no mention of in investments of universities, no mention of conflict of interest of board of trustees, to say nothing of sports or all the other topics. And I began to say, well, we may have something about some ethical guidelines about the professor in terms of his or her conduct with students in the classroom and the rest, but that's all that's been there and leave that as the field of academic ethics. I want something bigger. Mm-hmm. I want to talk about the campus. I want to talk about the so-called university community and to say, is that an ethical place? Mm-hmm. Right, right. So the argument is that the places that purport to teach ethics have a special responsibility to think through what it means to have an ethical culture. And pretty surprisingly, the two main candidates fail to do that. Um, yes. If I could just say, interject, I decided to just check, you know, like there, there are several hundred books in our library in medical ethics, probably about, uh, I say about 900 books on medical ethics and about 450 on business ethics. And then there's quite enough on nursing ethics and some on legal ethics. Um, there's nothing. There's not, you know, before my book, it's university ethics. Um, there's not one book. Hmm. The, all those books were written by, as I said, university faculty. And um, the only one who can write these books are faculty. So there's hmm. a certain, you know, conflict of interest or something going on here by the fact that faculty are not writing about their places where they work. Right, right. Uh, and if I, if I read your argument correctly, you talk about two major factors that are responsible for this lack of a community culture of ethics uh, uh, in universities. And then you uh, uh, go through uh, various uh, striking examples uh, in the book. So uh, if we take some of the examples in the book, for example, uh, the uh, shameful treatment of uh, adjunct faculty and the fact that so many of them are uh, uh, laboring under essentially poverty uh, uh, conditions without benefits and without job security. We take that as uh, uh, one paradigmatic example. And if you want uh, the, the prevalence of uh, sexual assault uh, slash drinking, the connection between them. Uh, if we take those two as our examples, and then if we go back to your uh, uh, explanations of why these things are allowed to take place. 
one factor you speak about is that the different parts of the university uh, exist in dif- different fiefdoms and don't quite communicate with each other. And that as a result, the university uh, is very siloed and no one part knows exactly or cares exactly about what the other part is doing. And then the other part you talk about, which I found really interesting, was the how faculties develop very individualistically in their own uh, cocoon, don't work in teams, uh, don't either give or get very serious mentorship. So could I ask you how you get from the cocoons and the individualistic factor, faculty mentorship to a problem like our disregard for the fate of adjuncts and the culture of sexual assault? Like how, how, how do those structural factors end up generating these bad results? Yeah, well, I mean, the, the, I, I think that, the, that these two things conspire together. They're perfect complements for one another. One is that uh, the university is so siloed, it's so uh, broken up into fiefdoms. The, the title university suggests that across the university, horizontally, there's great communication. As a matter of fact, uh, bird, the communication in the university is, for the most part, vertical. Just as a faculty member works with or his students, similarly, the faculty member is not accountable to the students as much as to faculty. So there's, 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 uh, there's this siloing that's a very vertical thing. And then it, it's coupled with the nature of the faculty member. You know, our formation as faculty is not like other places. I mean... Uh, a friend of mine, he uh, was the CEO for the New York Stock Exchange, and he says, when I walk around university campuses, he says, I look around and I see a faculty member sitting in her or his office by themselves, or maybe with one student. I go to the New York Stock Exchange, and I see a lot of people all on the floor. It's a very different uh, type of congregation. A university gives you the idea that there's a lot of intermingling, but there really isn't. You know, people are in their departments. And this is a, an enormous problem. I mean, do, do departments know, for instance, what rights and privileges are accorded to an individual um, adjunct faculty? There are t- two types of t- adjunct faculty, right? There's the there's the one adjunct faculty who becomes effectively a major member of a department, just as a tenure track. This is a person who has a regular contract that's renewed at good universities. They have uh, promotion. They have merit increments. They have basically parallel um, appointments to tenure track, and there's a lot of good justice there. Then there are others who are doing maybe a course this semester in this university, so they're they're part-time adjunct faculty. No one knows, except for the dean, what is going on in each of those departments because they're still trying to figure out what should be the rights. And they're trying to figure that out in many instances without any sort of um, collective presence. I don't mean collective bargaining even. I just mean that there's not a way of knowing that what political science is doing may not be what chemistry is doing and may not be what, um, you know, computer science is doing. And, 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 and this is all under the pretense that we're a university. But there's also coupled with that that the faculty member likes to be left alone. I mean, faculty members do like their offices. They do like their research. They do... Other than the sciences that do their research collectively and publish collectively, 
um, and to some extent, some of the social sciences. But in the humanities, where ethics comes from, um, it's basically singular publication, singular teaching, singular accountability, um, and very vertical responsibilities toward your chair or dean. In fact, there's actually a disincentive about doing it any other way in terms of people's promotion. Yeah, especially if you want to have, if, if you know, if you submit your article as opposed to a joint article, it's judged differently. If you are doing co-teaching as opposed to singular teaching, it's judged differently. So there's a certain way that the social structure of the university keeps the disposition of the faculty member to stay by her himself intact. Hmm. So I mean, it's a fascinating situation if you think about it. The people who go into university teaching in the first place are not necessarily animated by greed uh, or, yeah. um, you know, there is a sort of real intellectual curiosity. There is supposed to even be some kind of uh, space that's uh, created in a university for thinking critically, for thinking abstractly, for thinking beyond your simple position. But if I understand the argument correctly, you're saying that the structural setup is such that it discourages it, that it gets the people out of the habit of even thinking about the interests of others. It's a sort of Aristotelian picture where if virtue is inculcated by habit, the university somehow conspires to give us all the bad habits? Yes, but there's also that this is progressively becoming this way. It was in the late 19th century. At the end of the 19th century, the Ivies made a decision that all of uh, student affairs should come under some separate aegis, uh, some sort of bureaucratic structure that would be different from the faculty. If we remember that in the beginning, you know, even the president of the, of the Ivy universities was normally the person teaching ethics, that, that there was a certain way to talk about the formation of the student that was there. But by the end of the 19th century, there's this idea that the university has to become more of a research place and that, that this would be coupled with another group of people who would be responsible now for the moral formation or the um, responsible formation of students. Yeah. What's curious on this is that they did believe that as a matter of fact, they, there would be some way that the professor in the classroom or in his office or her office would know what was <laughs> happening with student affairs. And it was actually so that they would have a better, uh, but what we have is this more separate and more, um, you know, right now most faculty would not know about the personal situations of their students. They would not know whether they were hospitalized for a drinking incident over the weekend, whether they were assaulted or arrested. They wouldn't know whether they're impoverished. They wouldn't know how they're in the university. Do they have some sort of financial support? Um, there's, there's, not a, you, there's not an encounter uh, with uh, uh, persons in a sense that the university has siloed that into very different domains. Mm -hmm. I like to ask, when I go to campuses, I try to find out dorms. And then I'll ask faculty, what is, do you know what, you know, this dorm is? And I'll just say a name. They, and, and um, you know, they, they have no idea of, you know, so here we have a whole number of different dorms. And I can ask my colleagues, do you know what Vanderslice is? And they go, Vanderslice, is that like a 
you know, pizzeria nearby? And I go, no, that's a dorm. Yeah, so they don't, yeah, so they don't know. Um, you know, faculty don't even know where their students live. Um, and there are attempts to ameliorate this, but they're, they're very jejun for a university. Huh. Um, I'm curious, I mean, as, as you're making the point, as you're making the historical point about how this came to be, I'm curious, um, I mean, is there something to the argument that there's a tension between whether you're a place that focuses on knowledge and on the independent, not dependent pursuit of truth, if you want to uh, uh, put it in those big terms, and the place that is sort of oriented towards fuzzy community feeling. I mean, there can be tensions between what you owe to others, right, and what you owe to inquiry. But, but one of the things that is emerging is that people's capacity to research well, to teach well, is really aims at some sort of holistic mm-hmm. uh, Most of us realize that, um, as a matter of fact, um, with a few exceptions, that that the capacity to understand societies and how they function requires somehow an affect that's integrated in in, that we we don't, you know, goods psychological research will, and developmental research will talk about integration. Um, that You don't see that. We, we have the academic formation of the student versus the, you know, financial uh, well-being of the student versus the um, uh, social and, and maturation formation of the student. These are all... Uh, compartmentalized. The university has become an industry that um, has the taxonomy for its different components that it wants to address. Yeah. Factory. It's, right. it's not a university. It's a factory. Yeah. You know, as I was reading the book, and I want to ask you in a minute about some of the um, ideas and prescriptions you have uh, for improving this uh, and changing this, but as I was reading the book, it struck me uh, from my own experience, both at UMass and before that at uh, uh, Suffolk, where I uh, uh, taught for many years, uh, there's this obsession in so many schools with the U.S. News and World Report yes. right? and with the criteria that go into that algorithm into um, uh, deciding what you're ranking in and is and it's seen as a major way of recruiting students and it's uh, seen and, and none of the kind of factors that we're talking about are obviously part of that algorithm. None of the uh, community building factors, the breaking down of these uh, silos, the uh, community orienting of faculty. There's no, as it were, uh, cash value, right? In terms of uh, uh, ranking in any of these and, Nobody talks about, <clears throat> for instance, um, how prevalent sexual assault is on a university campus. Now, it, you know, s- some people will say that uh, in some places it's more dangerous for a woman to be on a campus than in a neighborhood mm-hmm. um, because sexual assaults happen so often on university campuses. Right. Nobody will say that an athlete 
will be more taken advantage of at a university than at not at a university. Mm-hmm. But as a matter of fact, almost all, almost all um, of your scandals each week that appear about you, about athletics <laughs> deal with university athletics, whether it's a lacrosse team, whether it's a basketball team, football team, whatever. Um, and, and so the the narratives about the well-being of people on campuses something so fundamental as that does not enter into the u.s it would be nice if they have your child is safe here at this university <laughs> we have responsible faculty here at this university yeah. we have we have administrators who actually develop positive relations with their faculty such yeah. that it's a creative and happy place yeah. none of that goes in and yet yeah. Um, we're, we're a university. We're supposed to be the model. Instead, yeah. instead we're the uh, imitator of. Yeah. Uh, so, so Jim, if you're if you're in front of a board, which I hope you are and you should be, yeah, and you have to do two things. You have to convince them that what you're talking about matters, and you have to suggest three or four first steps for turning the thing around, what do you say? Um, well, I usually uh, try to first help them to appreciate that, as a matter of fact, every university has an enormous number of difficulties. And that one of that is that they're only here, they're hearing, if they're on a board, they're basically hearing either the bottom line or the success stories. This. That, 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 that's basically what boards hear, bottom line or success stories. Also, the boards are made up, you know, like I was listening to one university president uh, talking at a conference that we hosted on university ethics. And she said that, you know, if you go to Mass General Hospital and you want to know who's on their board, they're all docs or they're all people in the medical profession. If you go to State Street and you want to see who's on their board at the at this financial institution. They're all people in finance. If you go to any other place, um, these boards reflect the competency of the people there. If you go to a university board, for the most part, they're people of money and management. Mm. Uh, There are very, very, very few people, one who have PhDs, let alone actually work in a university institution. Um, so there's a certain sense that we've handed over to the people this issue of the bottom line and let's give them success stories. So the board really doesn't have, even though it has the possibility of an aerial view of the university, it really isn't interested in that. It's interested in whether the president is functioning well and whether or not the bottom line is, is <laughs> successful. Um, I think we have to get to the board to at least say, are you interested in making sure that your um, administration um, is open to accountability, responsibility, transparency, and a way of promoting a culture of ethics on your campus? And then I would say, and some of those instances would be, could the faculty, could an administrator, is there an administrator who's charged with that responsibility? Uh, Penn State, when, after their scandals with the Sandusky affair, they, they really turned things around pretty quickly in uh, creating an ethics officer who had enormous oversight 
and who is fundamentally accountable to the highest level of the administration to talk about uh, how these things are. But what that person did was he went around to every employee to say, this is what we mean by ethics. So he would go to the accounting department and just talk to people. Do you understand what we mean by ethics and accountability and cooperation and the rest? And he would go to dining service. He would go to grounds. He would go to the philosophy department and made sure that everybody was educated on this. That, that's, that's, that education, that opening up the eyes, removing the blinders, bringing people into a social context where they could talk about ethics. It's creating a culture of ethics that you need. And the more that you gather people together and get them out of their offices and get them into some sort of collective situation to talk about responsibility, accountability, transparency, that's when we begin to see real growth. Right, right. Um, you, um, I guess one, one question that uh, I'm curious about, something that I've been uh, encountering uh, uh, in the last few years, and it's been all over the news, is this tension uh, between um, viewing the university as a, place where the free exchange of very controversial ideas is supposed to uh, be possible. And this has been uh, especially uh, emphasized uh, in the last year with the uh, uh, rise of the nationalist right and the racist right uh, uh, who uh, wants to express itself on campuses and so on and so forth. And on the other hand, the idea of the university as a, a, a safe space. Uh, and there's been real tensions and challenges around, uh, you know, the, the limits and meaning of uh, uh, free speech in university, whether uh, these are discussed philosophically or whether they're discussed more derisively with, you know, both faculty and potential speakers uh, worried about students being, uh, uh, quote unquote, snowflakes and too sensitive. I wonder if part of why this conversation is, has been so difficult to have and such a failure in some ways is because of some of the factors that you're talking about. Namely, we don't, we've lost the ability to negotiate any of this as a community. Right. There's an incompetency here. You know, I mean, I do think that the university has the capacity for this, but it has not developed the skill set for this. In other words, I do think eventually we could get to that level. But I think what you're, you're describing shows how minimalistic we are. Right. You know, that that when we talk about academic freedom, um, there's a certain way that, you know, I'm not in any way interested in curtailing that. I am interested in seeing some sort of culture that promotes the common good, that pays attention to race, that pays attention to gender, that pays attention to sexual orientation, that pays attention to uh, the variety of ways that greater society discriminates. Yeah. And that we need to remedy this. And if the university has been writing about those matters elsewhere, why can't they write about those matters at the place where they're teaching these? Yeah, that's a that's that's a perfect question. You 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 raised the uh, example of uh, uh, Brown coming to uh, trying to uh, come to terms with its own uh, historical involvement with uh, slavery as an example of oh, yeah. uh, trying to reckon with. Uh, <clears throat> Can you say why you think what they did is so important? 
Yeah, well, I loved it. And I actually interviewed uh, Ruth Simmons, the president. She's the first African-American president of uh, Ivy. Uh, I asked her what was it like to go to the first meeting of uh, uh, of uh, Ivy presidents, and she didn't have any comment. Um, <laughs> but um, uh, I thought what was really rather important here is that she she decided, she, as she said, you know, becoming the first black president and then having to deal with slavery, this was not the agenda I was looking for. Um, but what she did immediately is she set up a variety of ways that the university was going to look at their narrative. They were going to historically investigate themselves. They were going to be transparent about that. And they were going to try to find out how they needed to be accountable. So they put in place a, a, a social structure of ways of investigating and empowering uh, the right people to do the right investigation. It's not unlike what Georgetown is doing now with its issue on slavery. Um, I mean, these things are fascinating that they're happening now, you know, um, uh, hundred and, you know, 150, 170 years later, 180, 190 years later, um, you know, like, uh, it gives you an idea of how the university has been so uh, inept at uh, being accountable in, in its structures. So I found, I couldn't think of anybody, it, I, you know, a good scandal really helps. Um, I mean, Penn State, uh, what they've been trying to do is really rather good. I remember when I wrote my book, um, on university ethics, one of the first um, people to contact me was this guy who calls me up and he says, I just want you to know, I'm the, I think the first university ethics officer that there is in the country. And I'm answerable to this and I have full responsibility to uh, oversee every issue of ethics on this campus and all. And I said, where are you at? And he said, Penn State. And I started laughing. <laughs> and I realized, I said, yes, you know, good scandal. It's like here in Boston, you know, I mean, um, we had our scandal and we've, we've been assiduously trying to, you know, not make up, but at least yeah. show that this shouldn't happen again. Um, and, and to say why that shouldn't happen, not by simply preventative strategies, but by positive uh, strategies. So yeah. we're, we're not anywhere near that. He told me more recently that there are about 30 university ethics offices. Now, I, I'm very concerned that they're going to start giving us all sorts of little norms about what, how, you know, because universities love to quantify and to, you know, establish all sorts of numbers so that right. it can tell what it's doing. But it really needs to create a, a palpable culture in which people know that ethics is part of the university identity. And that would be nice to see U.S. News and World Report have that as a whole set of categories about what makes this university an ethical place. Yeah, yeah. It is, it is pretty shocking the degree to which that set of algorithms has an influence. I mean, if they did, which I wonder how one brings that about, it would probably make a surprising and a little bit depressing difference pretty immediately. Yeah, it would be nice if the U.S. News and World Report said, oh, yeah, we're going to check about whether or not the, the place that teaches ethics actually practices it. Yeah. Jim, I know I have to uh, let you go. I'm really, really grateful to you. And this is an amazing book that I think anybody who wants anything to do with the university should read. So thank you again. Thank you, Nir. Okay. Bye-bye.
Thank you for listening to Ethics in Action. For more on this podcast and on the Applied Ethics Center, check us out at umb.edu backslash ethics. Thank you.